Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Marta Maria Miranda Straub is a Latinx woman who has spent her life working towards building equity, inclusion, and creating systems change. Her leadership, organizing, and activism has focused on advancing social and economic justice for marginalized communities. She lives and works at the intersection of identities, ethnicity, race, gender, and sexualities, applying an intersectional feminist lens to all that she does. She's also the author of a book published last year, Cradled by Skeletons, A Life in Poems and Essays, and we'll talk more about that later. Marta, tell me how the recent uprisings, uh, statements, uh, arguments, uh, politics have touched your life. Well, um, thank you for inviting me and specifically for beginning with that work. I've been doing uh, social justice work, including community organizing, anti-racism work, immigration reform, queer rights, uh, all of my life, 45 years uh, of that work. And to be at this space and time in 2020 and to be seeing the depth of the racism and the hate and the police brutality feels like here we are all over again. And my, my heart is broken with feeling on one side that nothing has changed. We just buried it underneath it. It was a little less blatant. But the current political climate has brought all that pus back. And I think we have an opportunity to clean up 400 years of injustices and wounds and, uh, and not doing the right thing. And this is a call particularly to white folks who have privilege to really take up arms. And, uh, and I don't mean arms like the, the beautiful uh, right-wing folks with uh, rifles at the Capitol, but I mean uh, have those greasy chicken organizing potlucks and affinity groups and, and study groups and learn about white fragility and learn about uh, deconstructing racism and become part of a movement to really transform uh, a very old paradigm that is no longer working for anyone. So I am heartbroken on one hand, and I'm also hopeful that this is an opportunity to clean up and to see folks who are not impacted uh, to actually take action and uh, give the rest of us a break and kind of take us home. So you really do see this uh, in a hopeful way that it uh, can be a, what, new beginning for, for all of us, for, for white people, for patriarchy, for everything that has been wrong. This can be a starting point? This is, this is that there has to be destruction in order to reconstruct and I really believe these are the last roars of a patriarchal, racist, xenophobic, misogynist uh, dragon um, that um, is on its last deathbed and is pulling out all the stops uh, to maintain power and dominance 
um, and we can't have it anymore. And I think it's a call for all of us to realize that we have to figure out new uh, structures and new paradigms and new ways of talking and new, new lenses with which to build our democracy and to build an equitable uh, and just society uh, because we can't tolerate how it's the, what the normal has been. So I do see this as, a, as that bottom, uh, you know, that uh, as an individual I had to get to before I was transforming to a recovering addict and alcoholic. And when you've had enough and you can't live that way anymore, you do whatever it takes to live a different life. And I, I see that metaphor as an opportunity for all of us. So I, as much as heartbroken as I am, I'm an incredibly hopeful. And my charge is for folks who have never been involved before to learn, to support each other, to challenge each other, and to join a movement and create a white ally movement against racism. You wrote early this morning, and you were kind enough to to send me uh, some of your thoughts um, in almost a um, an essay uh, through text message. Uh, and part of what you wrote was, I challenge the existing violent paradigm because all that I am and breathe is or has been rejected, shamed, colonized, beaten, murdered, or illegal. I pound the podiums in public and weep in private. I remind us of the deep wounds on black and brown bodies, the impotence of white dominance and the bodies hanging for hours from Southern maple trees while good white folks picnicked. Those are strong images and words, Marta. I was choking. I've been choking. I've been quiet, which is unusual for me. I've been trying to find a way to be supportive when I cannot be at the marches any longer. I'm 66. My immune is compromised. I need to have a life to live. I have lots to write and lots to say. Um, so I've been choking on all that's been going on. And uh, that poem that I wrote today gave me a lot of freedom. Um, and it helped me discern what I was sitting with. And hopefully it will give a context to what's going on. Uh, because people keep talking about the looting and missing the point And uh, not really seeing how big this is, how old this is, and what the responsibility that we have is to use it. Um, so it's, it's a collective challenge. It's, a, it's an archetypal dance that we must, uh, we must uh, dance to and take to a whole nother stanza. So thank you for reading that. And I was really tearful when I wrote it. And uh, I knew we were going to be talking this morning. So without editing or any beauteousness, I just said it to you. What in your your background, um, your ethnicity, um, has caused you to, to focus on this maybe more so than many people that are looking at the television or hearing the reports? Yeah. Well, I was born in Cuba. And uh, at age eight, uh, my aunt uh, came home with a baby niece and I went to kiss them from the hospital and she had a broken jaw and a black eye. My uncle had beaten her just when she got home. And I asked her why she couldn't leave. And she said, I, I can't afford to feed my children. Um, after that, my parents left 
to New Jersey. Uh, we lived in a ghetto uh, full of brown, black, and Italian people. And it was, uh, the police called us a self-cleaning oven, meaning that he had to come in to kill us because we would kill each other. Um, and lots of drug addiction, lots of prostitution, lots of uh, violence. Uh, my family did the best to protect us, but that's the only place we could afford to live as new immigrants with no money and no family here. We came to Catholic charities. After that, uh, when I was uh, uh, living in Miami, going to school, um, I did my first practicum at Jackson Memorial Hospital. And uh, I worked with Vietnam vets who had killed someone as a result of PTSD. And they taught, they taught me about deep trauma and what it does to people um, and the violence that good people can do. And I got a real perspective there. And then I was working with the uh, immigrant refugee program in Miami, the Cuban-Haitian refugee. And my compatriots, the Cuban folks, were being welcomed in as soon as they put a foot on dry land. But my brothers and sisters from Haiti were being turned back on boats that we knew were going to perish on the way back. And the African-American folks thought they were too black and too uneducated to welcome them. And uh, my Cuban patriots kept saying that uh, they were not the same as us because they weren't here to work. Um, so I've had an experience all along where I've lived with and been, uh, you know, my, my high school counselor, uh, I got a scholarship to Montclair State where I wanted to go terribly. I'm a teacher at heart. And uh, he advised me uh, in what I believe was good intentions to go to vocational school because Catholic Cuban, Catholic Latina girls end up getting pregnant and not finishing college uh, to let American girls who were taught or to, to go to college before they did that. Uh, and I knew that he was trying to protect me from his own place. Uh, my father thought that I was a communist because I, uh, you know, I'm a social worker and believe in democracy, have always been marching. So he, he thought me as a failure. They come, he would say, we brought our daughter Marta so she can come to the United States to uh, get a doctorate in socialism. Um, so he was not proud of the work, which is a real shame. I'm really proud of my work. And it's because of him that I'm here and my mom. Um, and then lately, what's going, you know, then I joined the LGBTQ movement, the AIDS movement, uh, held young men that in two months died and we didn't know when. I was in the AIDS epidemic in Key West uh, doing that work. Um, and then, um, then the whole LGBTQ rights, I was part of the fairness campaign here 27 years ago, um, did a lot of rural organizing and queer politics, um, a lot of anti-racism and immigration reform work. So for me, this has been my life. It has been my work. Uh, my clients and, and my colleagues have taught me everything I know. And I have found a way to make a living doing purposeful, value-driven work. And I think that's the greatest gift of this life. So my, my poems and my book is reflected of the life that I've had. And I continue to live that way. And I find it incredibly rich and uh, very privileged because I do speak English. I do. I am a citizen. Um, I taught at the university for 17 years. I led a large nonprofit. And now I, in this pandemic, I get to be in this great place, talk to you, have food in the refrigerator and uh, have an opportunity to write poetry. So very, 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 very privileged space for a brown girl. Marta, um, 
your uh, background in uh, in sociology. I want to mention that you were uh, a professor at uh, Eastern Kentucky University for a number of years. Your uh, nonprofit work in Louisville at the Women's Center was uh, particularly um, uh, a great time for the center and for, for you. When you first arrived, what kind of Kentucky did you find at that time? And has it changed for better or worse? Well, um, I, uh, my degree is in social work. I worked in anthropology, sociology, and social work. And I was the chair of women and gender studies at Eastern for 17 years. So I was there a long time. And uh, I fell in love with Kentucky when I was on my way to Michigan to present a paper. I was in graduate school. And I passed by to visit a friend. And when I crossed the Tennessee-Kentucky line, I fell in love. And my, my, uh, my poem on being brown in the South and Cubalachan tell you about that time. I felt uh, home. I come from rural Cuba, and I never felt at home in this country until I found Kentucky. I bought a log cabin in Mount Vernon on 14 acres of wood um, and lived with the salt of the earth people. Um, and I uh, have a day in the life when I talk about killing a copperhead, you know. So um, I love Kentucky. I have been loved by Kentucky. At the same time, I was asked for citizenship papers in order to vote because they were not used to Latinos being able to be legal and, and have a driver's license here at the time. There were no Latinos. That was one of two at Eastern when I came. Um, and then everything has changed. You know, a lot of the migrant workers stayed and brought family. And then I moved to Louisville to take this position at the Center for Women and Families as their president and found this rich, diverse, uh, we have 102 languages here in Louisville. Catholic Charities is here, Kentucky Refugees here. So this is a microcosm of the world and I love it. So it has changed is that we have an incredible amount of diversity, at least in these areas. In the rural areas, a lot of rural people working alongside uh, folks because those kids, are, their kids are gone. So that's, that's who's working uh, agriculture right now and hospitality and construction, et cetera. Um, so um, I have found um, uh, the, the, the drug epidemic in Appalachia particularly a painful um, Urban areas, we've seen poor people die for years on um, drug and alcohol, heroin, opiates, meth. But to see folks having to resort to that in that rich little, in that poverty that had so much goodness in it um, has broken my heart. Um, and uh, so uh, we're not in a good place. Um, and uh, particularly poor people and people of color uh, are particularly damaged and suffering right now. And you have found that same thing in the urban area of Louisville, uh, particularly with your work uh, at the Women's Center. Yeah, the Center for Women and Families uh, served about 8,000 people a year in two states, all domestic violence, sexual assault, every zip code, um, horrific and horrendous. For those of us uh, who have never lived in Louisville or... And I would dare say for some who have never visited uh, West Louisville, who, who've not been uh, beyond uh, 9th Street, who don't know when uh, they hear the location of the death of the, the restaurant owner, uh, McAtee, uh, 26th and Broadway. Uh, tell us, uh, if you will, from your perspective, 
what what you know of of that part of Louisville and how it has either not improved uh, with all good intentions. Politicians, mayors have tried to instill in all the people in Louisville, East and West End, that that particular area has been neglected and and hurt over many decades. Give us your thoughts about, paint a picture for us, if you will, of of that particular area where the disturbances have occurred, um, and not just with uh, the unfortunate tragic death of Breonna Taylor, uh, the protests that have occurred in the last few days, but, but going back several years. Well, we need to start with redlining. If this was intentional. The city, like many other cities across the country, were set up to segregate people so that property value could be higher in one area than another. Um, so you see not uh, two-way streets, streets where you can get out. You also see that uh, the West End here had a very thriving African-American community, the same in Florida where I lived in Miami. And then we, I call it um, uh, African-American removal. They brought in urban renewal and redirected money and businesses away from there and that uh, areas that were thriving with uh, African-American business owners and professionals have become ghettos uh, in a lot of states. And that's what's happened on the West End. Um, you know, there are no restaurants there. I mean, I think I've been to one Sweet Peaches. There's no White Claws restaurant. And, you know, it's no access to really good education. So it has deteriorated over the years. If I own a home in the West End, same square footage, and as opposed to the East End, I have no equity in mine, and mine is not worth anything what yours is, and that's intentional. So that's the kind of structural systemic racism that we have created. And now is the time to look at structural change, not just people change and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, it's way beyond all of that. It's just a huge human problem. So it's a very rich area, has people who have lived there and grown up there all their lives who refuse to leave. There's younger professionals who come who are now buying property there. Uh, there's been an attempt on housing, uh, but people are not safe and there's not a lot of opportunity. The medium income there is somewhere around 18 to 20,000. It takes 45000 in this area to not be in poverty and to be able to support a family. That's without child care. Um, so the, the wealth gap is huge. Uh, the education um, uh, gap is huge. And, uh, you know, uh, people are kind of isolated. And uh, there's a lot of people don't go there. They're afraid to go there as if you know, people are going to hold them up or, you know, yes, there is crime uh, and people have better policing in the East End, but the South End and the West End are very rich areas of Louisville that a lot of people are missing. A lot of immigrants in the South End, lots of good little kiosks and bodegas. And, uh, you know, the West End has a rich history uh, about who they are and uh, what this incredible architecture that is in disrepair. Um, so I love, I love Louisville. Uh, I love the diversity in Louisville and, um, I love the compassion that the mayor has put out. Um, I love the fact that there's lots of, uh, lots of immigrants and lots of, uh, refugees here. So it is, it is, the world is here and I have a lot of hope and dreams for Louisville. 
What do you think um, the solutions are? I think they're systemic and structural. I think that we've tried to patch up and we've tried to make okay and we've tried to do the, the brochure version of change. I don't think we have really looked at structure, like how do we define our neighborhoods? How do we reevaluate property? How do we invest in the invested areas of the community? What are the zip codes that have the highest incidence of death, uh, of trauma, and of violence? And how do we put our resources there? Um, and how do we begin to bridge the gap between uh, people who uh, don't know each other and therefore they dehumanize each other? Um, I think we need, almost like in South Africa, uh, truth and reconciliation uh, rounds uh, to be able to hear the hurt and the experience of those who are marginalized and to listen and witness. And from that will come some answers as to what they need and what we need to do. Um, I think South Africa is a beautiful model of that happening after part, uh, apartheid. And I'm certainly advocating with the mayor and with a group here on Compassion and Louisville about starting those circles and having those conversations and really getting white people to get on board, read white fragility, uh, read how to be anti-racist, uh, begin to form groups and of allies uh, to, do, to do this work. And uh, there's many here who are willing to do that. Do you believe that racism is a learned trait? Do you think there's a way that young brown and black and yellow and white uh, boys and girls play together at three and five years old can continue to love each other throughout their life and not turn to destruction and, and hatred? Well, I think what happens is they get, they go into a system that is inherently racist and misogynist and homophobic, uh, heterosexist, sexist, xenophobic, and they begin to be in systems that give them privilege that other people don't have. And then they begin to blame people for not doing what they're doing. Um, so unless people have a personal relationship and a personal con a connection with a brown person, with an immigrant, with a queer person, with an African-American, and see the value in them, then that becomes individual. But systemically, uh, we're set up uh, as teachers to who we give the attention to. Uh, we, girls just started to get into STEM, you know, science, technology, and math. I mean, this, you know, we didn't even have girls do sports or be able to get into college. So all of this is structural, all of this is systemic, and all of this is historical. This is how we've been doing it. So uh, we teach men that if they are human and they have tears and they have sensitivity, then they can, they can be called all kinds of horrific names. Um, so therefore, they have to butch up and, uh, you know, show violence. Their peers ridicule and beat them and bully them when they don't do that. Um, so we have all kinds of social constructs, uh, rigid gender roles that keep us all in our place uh, because that's how we feel safe. And then there's them, and I'm not one of them, so I'm safe. And, uh, you know, we create, we create our own insanity um, in the social spaces uh, that we navigate. Yeah. So the, all that needs to change because if not, the policies don't change and the violence that we see, which is the tip of the iceberg, doesn't change. How do you see the white community 
your friends, as well as the people that, that you see every day, the, the white population, the, the, at this point, the majority uh, still population, not, not for long, but how do you see the white population changing in a way that it will result in a, a positive world and neighborhood and street and, and living condition that, that all people then can live together? Well, I, I think that what stirred up this hatred and this uh, incredible political climate is the fear of losing privilege and power just by being white, even when you're poor. And the thought that the majority of Americans will be brown uh, and black youth uh, soon, um, you know, and that they're not the majority. It's really, uh, this country is built on white supremacy and on enslaving people to do their job, their work for them. Um, And then on the farm workers who, you know, get paid pennies um, to be able to do our food. And uh, so, you know, my father was right. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm in no way a communist, but I am certainly a social justice advocate. And I think that, um, you know, we, the, the white people are afraid of losing the space that they have inherited, um, regardless of even class um, and their superiority. And if they see that threatened and they're terrified and uh, they see uh, us, people who look like me and like African-Americans as the problem. Um, and then they're, they're, they're like protecting their own uh, uh, space. So a lot of hatred. So folks need to realize that equity means everybody, <laughs> that inclusion is about everybody. All we're asking is for people to have the same access. It's not about for you to give up yours. Uh, But people don't get that. They just think there's only a limited amount of freedom and money, uh, which there isn't. And we pulled out $13 billion out of our butt to do this COVID relief. We could have invested that in other ways without having to have COVID. So I'm really learning that inclusion um, and, uh, you know, equity is about everybody. It's not about white people giving up. They have to give up power over other people and control. They have to let people in to help inform decisions and be at the table. So there's a culture and a, and a country of belonging by all of us, not just by a few of us. So white people have a lot of work to do. Tell us um, about your memoir um, ah, and you. uh, Cradled by Skeletons, uh, which was, uh, as I said, published last year, uh, poems and essays. Uh, it's a beautiful a book which is available uh, uh, from uh, bookstores and from uh, your publishing company. Um, and then I want you to read uh, a piece, but uh, this is your, this is your life in print. Is that correct? It is correct. And it's in Spanish and English. I was born in Cuba. That's my native language. And then I learned English here and it's from birth to my end of, at the center for women and families and my marriage to my husband. I married late. Um, very late because I had a lot of work to do. And uh, so he came in and kind of, uh, he's a German Catholic white guy from Louisville. He crawled in under the fence and I didn't deport him. I married him. Um, so uh, that, the poem, the book kind of ends there. Um, so yeah, it's my life from my birth. I was a twin and my sister died. And I write uh, from a voice of her and my father at the beginning of the book. And then I end with a uh, uh, some social justice work and some love uh, love poems uh, as well, and everything in between, immigration, family, all of that. Would you read for us, please, um, 
the, the work uh, that you've done and um, it's titled uh, Social Justice Prayer and it's, it seems to be um, quite uh, appropriate for what we've been discussing. Yes, thank you. The publisher, publisher is Shadeland House uh, Modern Press. It's uh, Joseph Beth in Lexington. It's a Carmichael here in Louisville. It's also, hate to say it, on Amazon. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I'm excited and, and open to read anywhere because I'm really semi-retired, so now I have time. This is Social Justice Prayer. And this is dedicated to Mother Jones, who said, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. She fought for the working class and minorities. However, she did not agree with women getting the vote. We all have blinders, but we must continue to clean our lenses and bring forth an inclusive and comprehensive movement for all, no exceptions. On this morning and at this moment and with this breath, we evoke the communal spirit of justice. We break bread with our neighbors and we extend our hand to our enemies and we pray. We pray for global justice. We feed our souls with the courage of those who have dared to break the silence of oppression. And we honor the holy places of protest, the streets, the public halls, the seat on the segregated bus. And we're strengthened by the marches, the brown hand who refused to pick the grape, the conviction of those who dared to spit in the master's soup. And on this day and in this moment and with this breath, we promise, we promise to bring water and hope to the thirsty immigrant. We demand access for the less abled body among us. We rejoice in the inherent goodness of all people and the power to love in spite of hatred. We worship all names giving to the Holy Ones and we pray. We pray for the marriage of compassion to power, for the abundance of the earth to feed the mouths of the hungry. And on this day and at this moment and with this breath we pray, we pray that our men and boys claim their true masculinity and bring their genitals in harmony with their hearts. And we pray that our women and girls grow strong, safe, and free. And we pray for us, the justice workers, that we may have a circle of family and friends to come home to and for a lover who's willing to wash our aching feet. Amen. Namaste. That is so beautiful, Marta. And you wrote this, uh, of course, before this most recent uprising. Um, no, and- my book was published last November. This was in the book. I wrote the one I sent you this morning about this uprising. But this is what I've used to do organizing work and to close organizing work. So thank well, it you. Speaks, it speaks so directly to uh, some words uh, that we all need to uh, take to heart, uh, to, to read uh, on a daily basis, and to remember that uh, what you said at the very beginning, uh, you are hopeful, and that there is a way out of this. Thank you. I, I believe that with all my heart. I really do. I believe in the inherent goodness of all people. And we, when we can start unpacking and getting to that, I think we'll be okay. Our guest today on uh, Think Humanities podcast has been Marta Maria Miranda Straub. Uh, We appreciate her taking the time to talk with us and uh, bless you, Marta, and all the good work that you've done and that you are doing. And we will uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.